Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we are going to be really enjoying, you know, the episode with this founder. You know, definitely we're going to be getting inspired with how he has built, scaled, financed, you know, all the above. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Kashish Gupta. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane here because you were born in India, in a small town there, but you grew up up actually in Atlanta. So tell us about that journey and also how you land at six years old and, and all the above. Yeah, I was born in a small town four hours northwest of, of Delhi in Haryana. And there, I mean, I guess like the way I grew up was very different compared to most of my peers here, especially in Silicon Valley. And to be honest, the mentality has always been there's nothing to lose. So if you talk to a lot of the founders that have a similar background, um, their answer is always, well, if I fail, what happens? I just go back to normal. Nothing really changes. Um, and that kind of chip on shoulder mentality has been pretty, pretty um, dramatically impactful because there's really nothing to lose. My background was really, I moved to the US when I was six years old. My dad was an IT consultant. So we moved around every three to six months. And so we lived in a lot of different states, um, finally settling in Atlanta. And then I grew up in Atlanta throughout middle school and high school, also moving a few times within Atlanta and just really reinventing myself over and over. How was it for you, by the way? Because you know, I know that your dad was working at IBM and then also he was the owner of, of, of a gas station. So I'm sure that, you know, you were able to really see, you know, him going through the ups, the downs. So how was that exposure for you as well? Yeah, I mean, you definitely see what hard work looks like because he was working two jobs. Um, he'd always wanted to work on a small business. And so he's always been like, do I want to start a gas station or restaurant, like that kind of stuff. And he ran that gas station for 14 years. And that gas station is literally what put me through college and was able to pay my college, my, my college tuition. So I'm super thankful for that. And just seeing how like a small business operates actually does give you a good mentality for like running business, um, thinking about things like accounting and like things like how to get more customers. And I would say that like an, an interesting thing was like, I didn't really learn English properly until eighth grade. So around sixth grade is when like my mind stopped thinking in Hindi and started thinking in English. And around eighth grade is where I like really properly got like, like competent in English. So going from like that world where like if you talk to me today, you wouldn't recognize um, that I grew up like in a, in, a, in a household that didn't speak English um, to what it is now is like, I think it just like changes your perspective on like where you start and where you are. So the same goes for my dad, right? Like he grew up in a single bedroom household with six brothers and now like he's doing really well for himself. It's like each generation compounds. And we see that pretty consistently, I hope, especially with immigrant families, that the parents that come over, they compound over one generation, their kids compound, and then the next year, generation compounds too. So I just feel like I'm part of that journey still. Now, in your case, you ended up uh, doing computer, you know, on the computer side and, and computer science, you even went to Wharton. I know that education in India is a really important thing. You know, there's a lot of pressure for becoming a doctor or becoming an engineer. I'm yeah. sure that your parents were very proud to see that you went to Wharton. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, because my dad had been doing IT his whole life, he actually told me not to do computers. And he convinced me that I should study something other than computer science because IT is always back office. Um, and 
the opposite happened when I actually went to Penn. I started off as Borden. Um, I was studying business and I found that like computer science is just a lot more interesting to me and I wanted to pursue that long term. And so then I went back to my dad and said, hey, look, like I think things have changed. Computer science is actually front office. It's the most interesting part of the job now. And that's where like all, all the fun is. So I started studying engineering against really my parents' wishes. Um, they kind of wanted me to be like out of the norm. And I think everything kind of like goes back to like the way it should go. But it ended, I ended up studying both, both business and computer science. Um, and I think that's also like fundamentally pretty useful because there's a lot of people that can build and there's a lot of people that can sell. But if you can do both of those two things, um, the impact you can have on a business is way different. Steve Jobs, right there. So, uh, so good stuff. Now, now in your case, uh, when you were, you know, coming out of of school, or or even still, you know, when in school, you did, you know, get your feet wet in the venture capital uh, world. Uh, mm-hmm. You actually went to Bessemer, amazing uh, VC, one of the top tier uh, entities out there. But how was that experience for you? Because now, you know, obviously you are on the other side of the table, but I'm sure that being on that side of the table, you got exposure to the pattern recognition, to what they look in people and, and all of that stuff. So, so what, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so I guess two things. One is um, it, it was game changing. I was basically paid to learn and talk to founders every single day. So it's like every day you wake up and you're like, all right, what's my thesis? What do I think is interesting? And then you're paid to like literally read about that topic all day, reach out to some really smart people in that space all day, and then talk to those smart people and learn from them about what the next interesting idea is. So the aspect of just being able to learn consistently about many different industries was amazing. Um, and then you're right, the pattern recognition of like, what is a good business? What do you think about when you think about like LTVD CAC or like ARR burn multiple? Like, what do you think about um, for like, like general, like triple, triple, double, double, that kind of stuff? Like all those patterns you see over and over. And the cool thing is that I was able to see it for many different types of businesses. So like just a broad understanding of like healthcare, hard tech, e-commerce, and B2B SaaS, knowing those businesses in and out actually helps you. Like, for example, at HighTouch, now when we're selling to those businesses, because we have both B2C and B2B customers, it's pretty awesome to like have a sense of how those businesses work, what drives top line for them versus bottom line, how they think about data as a cost center versus a revenue center. Um, all those like, like really business fundamentals, like seeing them in the real world is just way better than in school. Um, so that was a game changer. And the last thing is like, I learned that I could have a lot of fun investing but I didn't feel fulfilled until I was the one building. So it's really similar to like going to Wharton and then saying, no, I just want to build too. And then studying computer science. The same thing happened there too, where I was like working as an investor, um, helping the partners find good deals. But ultimately I knew that fulfillment would come when I was building something myself. And obviously you went to Wharton, you studied in the class of professor Tyler Rye, who I love, you know, and, and actually have had the pleasure of going and guest lecturing with him for many years. But, you know, one thing that he does very well is preparing his students for the real world of, of becoming entrepreneurs, no? Uh, mm-hmm. I think that in this case for you, you were alluding to it that, uh, that you were really, you know, more fulfilled on the, on the building side. And, and I guess that, you know, with Professor Rai, you had the exposure of having your, you know, business plan towards the end of the year. You needed to have, you know, something a little more tangible towards having a mm-hmm. company and stuff like that, that prepares you even more for the entrepreneurial world. But but I guess walk us a little bit through that journey of really realizing the investing side is probably not so much for me. I got to go, you know, and build something on my own. And what was that a process like from incubation 
uh, all the way to launch of High Touch. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's actually quite a long journey. The starting point was actually like post-graduation. I had the choice between like going and pursuing a job. And so what I was looking for was software engineering jobs because I wanted to build. Um, and then a travel idea I had at the time, which travel is a terrible business. No one should be doing travel. It's a really low margin business. Um, but the idea that we had was so compelling that people just kept saying, I want to use your product. I want to buy your product. Like, please give me your product. I'll pay you money for it. Right. So that smell of product market fit is actually what drew me to starting the travel business. And at that time, it was called Carry Travel. So the business called High Touch is actually Carry Technologies Inc. And it used to be a travel company from like 2018 October until around March 2021. Oh, sorry, March 2020. That's the business that we raised the seed round on and did YC for. And it was basically an AI travel agent that would book all your travel um, over Slack and over text messages. So that was, that was where, where, where we started. Um, and that's where we first got like real customer demand, but never made any money because the margins on travel were like sub 3%. Um, and the, the journey of starting that is actually probably like the one that was like significantly more difficult. Um, getting investors to put money into a travel company is really hard. Um, getting users for the travel company is hard because they just care about price. And then getting people to ultimately, like, then there's a huge ops problem of actually building a travel agency, which is partially AI and partially uh, human beings. So then you're also solving a large ops problem, not just a you know, technology problem. Um, so that was quite a bumpy road. Um, I would say that given that we were a travel company, we were doing like maybe like a few hundred thousand dollars of transactions per month. And so we were able to get that to a fairly interesting spot. Um, and then around 2020, January is when we started exploring new ideas outside of travel. Um, this was before COVID because we wanted to do something that had a lot more like revenue potential, to be very honest. Um, we felt that users were happy with our product, but they were not willing to pay for it. And we wanted to find something that people would pay for. So we were pivoting into customer success. And that's when COVID happened. And then we did a full hard pivot out of travel into customer success. And then there's a longer story that I can go into if you want, but it's from customer success to customer data to then what we do today, which is data activation. So then let's talk about what you guys are doing today at High Touch. So what is the business model for the people that are listening to get it? Yeah, so it's a really simple tool. We take data from any database and send it to your SaaS tools, things like Salesforce, Marketo, Facebook ads, Gainsight, anything you have in your company. And the idea is that anyone that has a SQL query in their company or any sort of BI dashboard, they can sync that data to their SaaS tools like Salesforce. So you don't have to write code at all to sync the data from database to SaaS. Um, it's like an easy to set up tool. It takes like five minutes. Um, it's all SaaS, so you can use it online for free. And we see like hundreds of companies already using this to get data from their databases into places like Salesforce. So for you guys, uh, February 2021 was um, when you had full visibility to product market fit. What was that like? Interesting thing is we raised the Series A in December of 2020 um, before what we would call product market fit. So in December 2020, we raised Series A. It was at a $75 million valuation. Um, and investors were very bullish on the business. They thought there was clear product market fit because they were seeing clear customer demand asking to buy the product. Um, on the other hand, me and Josh, one of my co-founders, our definition of product market fit is actually not someone's willing to pay me dollars for my product because there's a lot of ways that you can convince someone to pay you money for a product. Our definition for product market fit was one person should be fully onboarding onto our product every single day without any human being helping them. So every single day, one person logs on, onboards on the product, successfully sends data from left side to right side. And they didn't have to ask anyone on sales to help them do that. 
Um, that to us is real product market fit because it means you have inbound demand. So people are finding out about you often. And the product is actually fit to serve that inbound demand and convert those users. That's happened in February 2021. And that's when we really felt like this business is something that we can sustainably grow. Um, and that's something fundamental to our business. Like all three of us as founders, me, Tatis, and Josh, really believe in growing an inbound-driven business um, where hundreds or thousands of customers adopt the product over time, not just a few enterprise customers. So up until now, how much capital have you guys raised? Um, about $54 million. $54 million. And you were talking about being already at a Series A financing cycle where you guys pivoted to, to really finding the business model that you guys have today. So w- what was that process like? Because typically when you raise that kind of money and you still don't have it right and you're still kind of like pivoting, you can lose people. And then, you know, that sends some negative signal to the market, you know, which is not, not really good. It could be catastrophic. So how did you go about really walking the invest the existing investors through that journey with you so that they mm-hmm. kept the excitement high and so that you could get them, you know, also excited towards, you know, financing you all the way until you are today? Yeah. So the interesting, uh, the thing that we did well is we didn't hire aggressively at all until we found Reverse ETL, which is the business we're working on now. And we didn't actually, like, it was just four people. It was just three founders and Ernest, our first hire, um, up until we raised the Series A and actually we're doing reverse ETL data activation full time. So that's the, that was the $12 million round. Um, and that's when we started making our first like 10, 15 hires, mostly engineers, to build out the data activation product with us and take that to market. So we would say that we truly went to market with that product, like starting November 2020. Um, to, and then... February is when we had like true inbound for that product. Um, and we truly started hiring around the same time, November 2020, after we were at the Series A. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So, so tell, us, tell us then about preemptive rounds, because here you go, you know, you get, you get the investors. I mean, you didn't go too crazy as you were saying. Finally, you were able to really hit it on the nail. And, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, preemptive rounds start to happen for you guys. What, what is a preemptive round for the people that are listening to really understand it? And how did it happen for you all? 
Yeah, so um, preemptive just means that a round happens before you raise the round. So I might tell investors, oh, we have plenty of runway. We're going to raise the round next year. Um, and that investor might say, well, I would like to preempt your round um, and have you raise it earlier. And in exchange for that, I'll give you a valuation that's similar to what it would have been a year from now anyways. So it basically just means like before you get to the revenue stage at which you want to raise the next round or the progress that you want to raise the next round at, um, some investor says they'll raise, give, you, give you a fundraise earlier. Um, and so that's what happened for the Series A. Um, again, we were just four people. We had a few customers and a working product. Um, and we had tons of pipeline. So we had like, I think it was like almost like a million dollars of sales pipeline of deals and customers that were saying, I like this product. I want to think about buying it. Let me talk to you about buying it. And for each of those, we basically just wrote down the certainty that that person would close and at what price tag. Um, and so even though we didn't have any meaningful revenue at all, um, based on the deals and pipeline, you actually could see that expected value was like 250K or like 300K revenue, which at that time was a reasonable amount of revenue for a Series A company. I don't think that's like any reasonable Series A revenue by any like normal standards, but in that market it was. And so that's actually how the Series A got preempted. It's because we had done a lot of go-to-market um, and had a lot of customer pipeline to prove that there was customer demand, even though there were not like as many closed customers at the time. And as they say, cashiers with uh, money in, there's expectations, you know, and obviously there is a uh, monitoring and, you know, obviously the investors, they're going to want to have a, a seat, a sit at the board and a sit at the table and have, you know, a say when it comes to the strategic guidance of the company. So when mm -hmm. it came to really building the board and making sure that you had the, the people that you knew, you know, had, you know, what the company needed, how did you go about really selecting this, this candidates to come on? Because I know that you guys were extremely selective there. Yeah, so we, we interviewed our board, like our potential board members very aggressively. Um, in both the Series A and the B, like we did have um, a multitude of firms we could have worked with, which was nice because then you're not just deciding between valuations, you're deciding between people. And these people are going to be with you for 10 years of your business, right? It's like, same as your co-founders are going to be with you for a very, very, very long time. Your board members will be as well. Um, and we selected them on a few criteria. The first and foremost being, they should care more about winning the market and number of logos than revenue. So when we selected Amplify for our Series A, the reason we were so convinced we wanted to work with them is because we knew they were so aligned on winning the market at all costs and focusing on number of customer growth rather than dollars of revenue. Most board members will come in the company, they'll say, all right, I need to see this revenue for this much cost. I need to see this revenue next year for this much cost. This is what I need to see every single time. And they don't care about anything other than dollars in. Um, that eventually becomes a good mindset like at a later stage, like Series C or Series D. But at an early stage, what you really care about is win the market in such a way that in future years, your inbound will grow so dramatically that you'll have revenue for future years. So you care about monetization being a possibility, and then you care about growing the number of customers really fast that will then refer more and more customers. So Amplify was really aligned on this concept of grow number of customers above all else. And they said that we will continue to finance you as much as needed in order to make that happen. Um, and then when we get to a good spot with number of customers, then we can think about monetizing them. Um, so we really agree with this. And the second criteria was belief in product-led growth over sales-led growth. So again, a lot of investors will say, hire 10 salespeople. The 10 salespeople will make a million dollars each of revenue. Boom, that's $10 million revenue. And that's like how you grow a company. And you just keep stacking salespeople and they keep stacking um, revenue. And that's like pretty much how people grow. Um, we have this belief that like, A, that only works if you do outbound and our business is inbound driven. 
And B, like we don't want to build that kind of business where you're linearly growing with a function of salespeople. We want to build the kind of business that's exponential, something more like a GitHub or a Jira where tons of people can just come inbound and all use your product um, and all pay you money online, right? So belief in PLG and the inbound motion, the bottoms up motion was really important to us. Um, and that bet actually did work out, right? Like we have a ton of data people onboarding our product every single day, using it for really simple use cases. And they don't have to ask anyone for permission. They don't have to buy anything from us. They're just using it. So that belief that we could be a bottoms up growth company, if investors are not aligned with that, they'll continue pushing you in the wrong way. Like go hire a bigger sales team, go make more money. So we were rigorous for the series A and the series B and like selecting investors that way. And just like ask them like a lot of questions around how do you think this business grows? How many salespeople do you think we need? Um, do you think self-serve checkout makes sense for this product category and so on? And what about board dynamics? Kashish, what have you learned there? We're an interesting breed of founder because we will continuously push ourselves harder than the board pushes us. Um, I don't know if that's going to be true forever, but so far that's what we've been seeing. Um, so like if you look at what me and Tejas want from the business, it's like, it's like this. And what the board needs is like this, right? So our actual board dynamic is getting the board aligned with what do we need to do to see 5x or 10x growth? Let's talk about that. And that's all we care about. It's not how do we protect downside? How do we grow like linearly? It's always like, how do we grow 5 to 10x? Um, and so far, like, I guess my belief is this, that founders have the most information about their business, even more than their board, right? So you as a founder can actually say, I think I can grow 5x this year, whereas the board only needs to see 3x. And so as long as you're in that state where the board, where the, where the founders actually have better information about the company than the board does, I think the founders need to push the board to like grow faster and find ways to do that and invest, have more, like invest more money um, to make that happen. And then at a later stage, it might be a bit different. Like the other dynamic that's been helping us a lot is the board has a lot of maturity around like when to grow the team. So they'll say, hey, you should hire an executive team to run all these functions because you can't do it anymore. Or they'll say, hey, like we should hire specific roles that we didn't think of hiring, like a finance lead or a partnerships lead, so on. They're really good at pushing us in ways that help us think like a bigger company than we are, because in like six months, we will become that bigger company. And they're good at making us make those decisions six months in advance so that they're fully ramped decisions by the time the need happens. And one of the things that, uh, that I heard you say too is that as part of the culture that you guys are building, you never sell. What do you mean with this? Yeah, so every salesperson that joins HighTouch, the first thing we train them on is you're not going to sell, um, which is counterintuitive. Um, we want them to have a consulting mindset rather than a seller's mindset. Um, and Calvin French Owen from Segment has a really good blog post about this on his blog. Early stage sales being consulting and helping people figure out their problem and how to solve that problem rather than selling them a product. So here's a good example of this. Um, you come to me, you tell me, I want to send data to Salesforce, but I don't have a database. A lot of sales teams would find a way to hack together some solution and sell you some smoke and mirrors and then get the revenue from you. Our sales team says, no, that's not a good use case of high touch. I actually recommend using Zapier. I recommend using some other tool that's not high touch to solve this problem. Undoubtedly, in six months, the customer comes back and says, I trust you because you told me the right thing for me at that time. Now I have a database. Now I want to buy high touch. Can you please help me buy high touch? So what we care about is find the right solution for that customer for their problem, regardless of whether we make any money or not. Build that trust. Because we truly believe that every single company in the world will buy Hightech at some point. And, and that's the mind sh shift that's, like, that, that's different from other companies. Um, not everyone gets to say, at some point, everyone will become a customer. For a lot of them, it's a zero-sum game. Like, if you go by Zapier, you can't buy Hightech later on. Um, but that's not true for us. For us, 
It's that everyone eventually graduates into a stack where high touch is the way to get data into their SaaS tools. The question is just when, and when does their business become mature enough to need that? And so we train our sellers on consulting. And we've seen that like tons of times where like public companies will evaluate high touch. They'll say they're not ready. Six to 12 months later, they'll say they'll, they'll come back and they say, you helped me out when I wasn't ready for you. Now I'm ready to buy you. Here's $200,000. Uh, and we've seen that like three or four times now. So we know that mentality works. Um, and then furthermore, the sentiment that people get in market about you as a company and you as a brand is that these people are real and they're only going to sell me something real. So another thing we train on, if the product doesn't solve the problem, loop in an engineer, have them solve the problem, and then only do you ever charge the customer. So you might say, I want to automate like the creation of opportunities in Salesforce. And we might say, oh, we don't have that today, but you can hack it together. Instead, we'll say, no, like that's actually not available today. Let me loop in an engineer. Engineer will join the call on a Tuesday. They'll ship the feature by Thursday. And by Friday, the, the, the customer is using that new feature that lets them automate creation of Salesforce opportunities. Only then will the salesperson ever say, all right, is it working for you? If so, how much can you pay? Um, they're never selling something that doesn't work. And the engineering team like, loves this kind of stuff. Like, they just like, have so much fun getting on those calls, solving the customer problem, like light speed, and then we charge the customer. I love um, that. I love that. And for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size of the operation, anything that you can share around perhaps number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable with? Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, 2021, we grew from four people to 40 people. And then 2022, we started at around 40 and now we're about 90 people. And wow. the year is like halfway over. Um, so employee growth has been really fast. Customer growth has also been similarly fast. We started from four customers in 2021 and ended the year at almost 200 customers. Wow. Um, and now we're approaching something like 300 customers. And we hope we can get to like more than 500 or around that much by the end of the year. Um, and all of these are like reasonably sized customers because the thing I didn't mention is that most of our customers are pretty mature companies and they have this thing called a data warehouse in the company. So when we say get data from any database into your SaaS tool, we usually mean a data warehouse, something like a Snowflake or a BigQuery. Um, and a data warehouse is interesting because it's a central repository of all data, the data in your company. It's not just a single database. It's usually like a conglomerate of a bunch of different databases. And mostly enterprises switch over to this paradigm of using a data warehouse. And so most of our customers are like mid-market and enterprise. And we already have like a few of the Fortune 500 using us too. So wow. building that kind of business that's bottoms up inbound driven, we've literally just done like one or two outbound deals ever out of the 250 customers, 300 customers that we have. Um, building an inbound bottoms up driven business, but still selling to enterprise and mid-market, it's, like it's like a contradiction. So when you tell people that's what I'm doing, they think it's not possible. Um, but that's like precisely what's been happening for the last year and two years. And so now we just have like a lot more conviction around being able to sell to bigger and bigger companies um, using the exact same product that we built two years ago. I love that. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight, Kashish, and you wake up in a world where the vision of high touch is fully realized. Yeah. What does that world look like? Um, it's a world where every single person in the company, in any company, can use data to take, to take action. So you think of like, what, what is a BI tool, right? A BI tool is a place where you look at your data and you see the analysis. You don't do an action. So HighTouch is the tool that everyone in the world can use to take action on data. Whether it's me running a marketing campaign, me finding users I can upsell on sales, me finding users that need support from support, um, anyone in the company can take that action themselves. 
regardless of knowing SQL or knowing about data. Um, and so it's really about making that accessible. Um, and then hopefully like using that data to drive some business impact, right? So like, why do I care about that marketer being able to take data and then personalize the email campaign? It's because they can convert more users if they personalize the email campaign. Or the salesperson can sell people better contracts that cost more money because they have customer data that says this person is using this feature. So end of the day, it's all about using it to accomplish something. And then that person having full control and agency over using that data to accomplish that business impact. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, Kashish, perhaps at that point where you, know, you, were, you were coming out of Bessemer, you were figuring out you know, what you wanted to do you know, on the building side. Imagine you were able to have a chat with your younger self and you were able to give that younger Kashish one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I mean, there's, a, there's a, a few things that I always share with other founders. If I was to share something with myself back then, um, the thing that got us through six pivots to get to high touch was the understanding that our downside is limited and upside is unlimited. So it's like a really simple concept, right? Like if I fail, what's the worst that can happen to me? And if I succeed, what's the best that can happen to me? And if you see like only a little bit of badness and a lot of goodness on the downside and upside cases, you, you go for the upside, right? So it's simple as that. Um, and we are lucky that like, for example, like if in the early stages when, the, when we're pivoting, we didn't know if our business was any good. Um, if the business didn't work, we would all be able to find decent jobs and be reasonably successful, right? So the downside case was always like pretty good. Vesmer even told me, they're like, look, run your business. This is awesome. If it doesn't work, just come back and work for us. This job is here. We're, not, we're, we're a pretty stable fund. We're not going anywhere, right? So the downside being limited was pretty awesome. And then the other one is like, most people are actually really down to help you if you just ask. So regardless of how like, little time they have or how famous they are, they actually will respond to your email and help you as long as you give them a really good way for them to leverage their time. So if you say that in five minutes, you can help me make a huge impact in my life, I will give you those five minutes, no problem. It's really about making sure that you give me high leverage on my time and then I'll happily give you my time. So having that mindset of like, everyone is here to help me if I reach out to them and give them a good reason to do so. Um, that helps us a lot because we always ask for things that we shouldn't be able to get. And we always had like customers ready to talk to other customers, ready to talk to investors, ready to buy our product um, earlier than the product was even there. Wow. That's a really profound there, Kashish. I mean, I'm sure that you are, you know, definitely inspiring to a lot of the people that, that are listening here. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you is, for the people that are listening and that want to say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, uh, my email is kashish at hightouch.com. It's K-A-S-H-I-S-H at hightouch.com. So happy to um, meet anyone through the podcast there. And for me, like, I mean, there's a lot of stories to share around like finding product market fit, the questions that we ask our customers. It's so always really happy to talk about that journey of finding product market fit. Um, and now that we're scaled from like four people to 90 people, um, there's just a lot of new learnings around like, how to build teams um, and how to grade those teams and how to then like grow those teams. Like one thing that people always wonder is like, what is the job of a founder and what is the job of a CEO? Right. And it's really easy to get distracted by like, I need to do this one thing, like acquire that one customer or acquire that one, like, like, like hire or whatever it is. Um, the way I think of it is like the executive team is here to accomplish this year's goals. Right. So whoever we hire, um, if they're the right team and we've done a good job of hiring them, they should be able to accomplish this year's goals. 
um, because we've set goals that are reasonable and like, tractable, and we've given them the tools that they need to solve those goals. Us as founders are here to then increase the total upset of the business. So is this business going to become a $5 billion business, a $10 billion business, 50 or 100? Um, and if we just keep asking ourselves that question over and over and over, and we ask ourselves, what can we change in our business to make that happen? So one thing that like my, one of my close friends who's also a founder like, taught me is if you're growing 2x, ask yourself, what would I have to do to grow 4x? And then see how close you can get to that, right? So like, let's just for hypothetically, let's say you're going from 10 mil to 20 mil of revenue. What do you have to change about your business to go to 40 mil that year? Is it more hires? Is it more money spent? Um, is it higher ACV? Is it more customers? What is it? Write it all down. See what you can do to actually track towards those goals. And then your, your team will be executing from 10 to 20. You'll be building the plan from 20 to 40. And you'll land somewhere in between. So you might land at 30 mil of revenue instead of 20 mil of revenue because you thought about what it takes to develop it. I love that. Kashir. wow. Amazing. Well, hey, you know, super nice having you. What an honor. And thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker podcast today, Kashish. Of course, thanks for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.